Welcome everybody to the UARD lecture for 2011. Richard UARD, a law graduate of Magdalen College, endowed this lecture in perpetuity and the goal of his endowment was to bring the historical study of law away from specialists towards the entire legal community to show how historical thinking about the law is crucial to appreciating law as a culture. And we're very honoured and very delighted to have Stefan Talmon today, who is Professor of Public International Law at Oxford and a Fellow of St Anne's College, as our 2011 UART lecturer. In autumn 2011, Stefan takes up the Chair of Public International and European Law and the Directorship of the Institute of Public International Law at the University of Bonn. We are very lucky to have had Stefan in our midst as a colleague in Oxford for the past decade. And we are, of course, very sorry to lose you to such a, well, it's a distinguished continental university, but still we're very envious and we're sorry to lose you. Stefan, together with other recent recruits from across the channel, has helped make Oxford a major place of scholarship in legal traditions outside the Anglo-Commonwealth law. And for that comparative and cosmopolitan perspective, we are enormously grateful. And also for your unfailingly courteous, thoughtful and good-humoured presence throughout the years. I hope you will miss us very badly, as we shall miss you, even as you and your family flourish in Germany. Stefan's highly regarded work on the recognition of states and governments in international law brings a sharp historical eye to bear on the problems of international legal order. And it is entirely fitting that you, Stefan, should explain to us how history and historical analysis has long been intertwined with the discourse of public international law. So I invite you to give your lecture how public international law has been made, found and proven from the 17th to the 21st century. Please note that we are now getting the 17th century added on for the price of your admission. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Josh, and thank you very much to all of you uh, for coming tonight on such a, a lovely uh, evening. I'm especially delighted and honoured uh, that Lady Brownlee is here tonight with us. As many of you will know, uh, Sir Ian meant a lot to me as a teacher, colleague and friend. I would also like to thank Josh for inviting me to give this year's UART lecture. And I must warn you, if at all, I'm an amateur historian and I'm not uh, sure that I will be able to live up to the expectations of all the historians here in the room. But nevertheless, I found this a very interesting and stimulating brief. The question, how public international law has been made, found and proven, has interested me for a long time. And researching the question over the last couple of weeks, has been an incredibly illuminating journey, as some of my students in the audience will be able to realize, because I will be giving up all views that custom has anything to do with the sources of international law tonight. I'm glad that you have not been put off by the time span covered from the 17th to the 21st century is quite a journey and I will have to cut quite some corners to finish in time. Although Merrill, in an email kindly to me, has said that she would bring a thermo flask for coffee and a sleeping bag, if necessary, to see this through. Over the next 50 minutes or so, I would like to examine what the formal and material sources of public international law have been, have been for the last 400 years. In this, I will be guided by George Dawson, who in 1694, in his Origio Legum, a treatise of the origin of laws and their obliging powers, wrote, I quote, The benefit of laws is reaped by all, but few consider the origin and fountain from whence that benefit and those laws themselves do flow. And the reason is because the first causes of things lie hid, and it is a business of some difficulty to search after and find them out. 
but he who will take the pains to consider from what root all laws do grow will find a far more noble pleasure than those can do who enjoy only their ease and quiet under them. I should perhaps start with a definition of what I mean by formal and material sources of public international law. And there is no better place to look for such a definition than in Ian Brownlee's Principles of Public International Law. According to Brownlee, I quote, the formal sources are those legal procedures and methods for the creation of rules of general application which are legally binding on the addressees. The formal source, that is, the origin or fountain of legal obligation to use Dawson's expression. The material sources, on the other hand, provide evidence of the existence of rules which, when proved, have the status of legally binding rules of general application. So please join me in the red telephone box for my Doctor Who-like journey through the centuries of public international lawmaking. The first stop of our journey must, of course, be Hugo Grotius, who is often referred to as the father of modern international law, and who in his influential and groundbreaking work on the rights of peace and on the rights of war and peace published in 1625, divided the law between nations or rulers of nations between the law of nature derived from God and the law of nations, the use gentium or voluntary law derived from the consent of all or at least of many nations. Grotius built, of course, on the work of Francisco Suarez, a 16th century Spanish Jesuit theologian and specialist in Roman and canon law, who argued that not all law came directly from God and that there was international custom instituted by the will or consent of the greater part of the community of nations. Amazingly, the idea of international law combining elements of natural law and laws based on consent is still with us today and can be found in many textbooks although I hope to show that this view is mistaken. The idea of these two formal sources was based on the underlying concept of the equality of nations. Charles Molloy wrote in the De Jure Maritimo e Navali, or a Treatise of Affairs Maritime and of Commerce in 1676, kingdoms which are equal in power and having no dependence on each other, cannot be commanded nor corrected of another. Let us have a closer look at the two formal sources identified in Grotius's work. If we read the rights of war and peace, it becomes clear that for Grotius, the law of nature is ultimately derived from God. As independent nations acknowledge no common superior, they may be considered as living in a state of nature which respect to each other and are, and are thus subject to the laws of nature only. For Grotius, natu natural law is the dictat of right reason and the actions which are the subject of this exertion of reason are necessarily commanded or prohibited by God. In another paragraph he says, such actions are either forbidden or enjoined by God, the author of nature. Later commentators on Grotius' work have also referred to the law of nature as the law of God or the divine law, being the rule of conduct prescribed by him in his to his rational creatures and revealed by the light of reason or the sacred scriptures. God was seen as the only superior power who could issue commands with binding force to equal and independent nations. Finding the law was considered a question of reason. 
The law of nature was to be traced from principles of reason. It was to be derived from the nature of things and from the condition and circumstances of mankind when they are considered as formed into civil societies. Finding the law of nature thus became an exercise in deduction of rules from certain premises established by God. The early writers were aware of the shortcomings of this process. Reason, after all, was defined as the faculty of the mind which teaches us to draw conclusions from certain premises. However, it was said, what the premises are themselves, unless they again are to be deduced by reason from others, it never, it never will teach us. This leaves the question of how the law of nature was to be proven, or, in other words, what were its material sources. For Grotius, the principles of the law of nature were manifest and self-evident for everyone to see. If proof was needed, he turned to the testimony of philosophers, historians, poets, and even of orators. He said, I quote, not that they are indiscriminately to be relied on as impartial authority, since they often bend to the prejudices of their respective sects, the nature of their argument or the interest of their cause. But where many minds of different ages, ages and countries concur in the same sentiment, it must be referred to some general cause. And this cause must be a deduction from the principle of natural justice. Nothing much had changed some 130 years later when Thomas Rutherford delivered his lectures on Grotius the Eurybelli at Parkes, read at St. John's College, Cambridge. According to Rutherford, use may be made of, I quote, the judgment and testimony of skillful persons in order to find the dictates of reason, because what is approved of by men of prudence and honesty and experience is more likely to be conformable to the dictates of right reason. In contrast to the law of nature, the law of nations was to be based on consent. Grotius considered the law of nations as a positive institution, deriving its authority from the positive consent of all or the greater part of nations, which he supposes to be united in a social compact for this purpose. He writes, the consent of all, or at least the greater number of states, may have produced certain laws between them. This is, this is what is termed the law of nations when it is distinguished from natural law. The law of nations is also referred to as voluntary law as it is based on the will of nations. Charles Malloy, writing in 1676, also refers to the law of nations as the law of will or the common consent the law of will or the common consent which arises from free will and consent. The idea of consent as a formal source of law is of course based on two premises. Namely that nations have consented in the first place to treat each other as moral beings or in today's language as legal persons. And that they are capable of binding themselves by consent. Finding the law of nations is a question of fact. It is found by an inquiry into the will of nations or states. Proving the law of nations, however, is more difficult. As a law of nations, according to Grotius, is an unwritten one, there is no original record of it and no copy of any such record. The law of nations is proven like the unwritten civil law 
by reference to the continual usage and the testimony of experienced men skilled in the laws. This law, Grotius writes, and this of course will delight the historians amongst us, is an invention of life and of time, and thus the great historians are of excellent use to us. Grotius' theory of the law being based either on the commands of God or on consent through immediate criticism. And that is what I want to look at now. It was first argued that there can be no such positive law of nations because there is no social union among nations as that supposed by Grotius. All nations are part of the collective idea of mankind, but this is not a social union. An approved usage and general acquiescence, however, can only spring up among nations of the same class or family, united by the same ties, the same origin, manners, and religion. Grotius himself admitted that the law of nations, unlike the law of nature, could not be universal law binding upon the whole human race. The law of nations was only a particular law, applicable to a distinct set of families of nations, varying at different times with a change in religion, manners, government, and other institutions among every class of nations. Hence, the international law of the civilized Christian nations of Europe and America is one thing, and that which governs the intercourse of the Muslim nations of the East with each other and with Christians is another and a very different thing. This led to the situation that the law of nations for a long time was, first and foremost, the law of the European nations and their North American brethren. Secondly, it was argued that it was difficult, if not impossible, to establish the consent of all nations. Samuel Pufendorf, writing in 1717, argued that even if one spoke all the languages of Asian and modern people, it would still be difficult to examine their manners and institutions. This difficulty could not be solved by simply relying on the consent of the most civilized nations and to discard the opinion of the barbarians. He asked, which nation could be called barbarous that was able to manage and preserve itself? Or which nation could pretend to say that its own manners were the standard in trying all others, and that those who did not conform with its own model should be immediately pronounced barbarous and savage. The third criticism, criticism leveled against the law of nations was that consent can produce obligations, but not law. Emma de Vartel wrote in 1758, I quote, the customary law of nations is founded on a tacit consent, or if you will, on a tacit convention of the nations that observe it with respect to each other. Whence it appears that it is only binding to those nations that have adopted it, and that it is not universal any more than conventional laws are. There has, of course, also been criticism of the law of nature as a part of international law. First, it was argued that the law of nature was not suitable for the relations between civil societies. The law of nature was based on the idea that man, owing obedience to none and having no positive law to control him, trusts for the direction of his conduct to nature alone. The law of nature was thus concerned with man, not civil societies. 
It was to be applied to the relations between, if it was to be applied to the relations between civil societies or states, Christian Wolff and Emma de Vattel argued it needed readjustment. Secondly, it was said that the law of nature does not provide any detailed or clear rules for most questions governing the relations between states. Thus, it did not provide any rules, for example, on the privileges of ambassadors or the cultivation of commerce between nations. Robert Ward, writing in 1795, said, in many points, that law of nature absolutely withholds its decision and leaves us often to chance, where precedent is wanting to determine a rule by which millions perhaps are to be governed. The criticism against consent as the basis of the law of nations was taken up and was addressed by the refinement of the element of consent. While Grotius and others following him based the law of nations simply on consent or common consent, later writers tried to distinguish between various forms of consent as the source of international law. Emma de Vattel, in his Law of Nations or the Principles of Natural Law in 1758, introduced a distinction of three different types of consent. First, presumed consent of nations arising out of their general usage. Secondly, express consent evidenced in treaties and other international compacts. And thirdly, tacit consent of particular nations establishing a particular usage. This led him to a subdivision of the positive law of nations into voluntary law, based on presumed consent, conventional law, based on express consent, and customary law, based on tacit consent. Although the view that customary law is based on tacit consent was challenged by Georg Friedrich Martens and others, who suggested to replace it with presumed will, the idea of tacit consent as the basis of customary international law has shown to be pretty resilient and may still be found in textbooks today. Sir Hirsch Lauterpacht, writing in the eighth edition of Oppenheim, talks about tacit consent that is implied consent or consent by conduct as one of the two sources of international law, the other being express consent. Grotius' idea of the two formal sources of international law came with an inbuilt hierarchical structure with the law of nature at the top. The law of nature was considered universal, immutable, and existing through all times. To the extent that the law of nations was in conflict with the law of nature, it was invalid. States, by their mutual consent, could not contract out of the law of nature. Emma de Vattel said, I quote, but if that custom contains anything unjust or illegal, it is of no force, and every nation is under an obligation to abandon it, nothing being able to oblige or permit a nation to violate a natural law. The decision of Chief Justice Marshall of the U.S. Supreme Court in the Antelope case in 1825 has generally remained an exception. The judge in that case held that although the slave trade was contrary to the law of nature, it was in accordance with a universal and immemorial usage, and that the usage followed by all could not be considered as contrary to the law of nations.
The publication of Georg Friedrich Martin's summary of the law of nations founded on the treaties and custom of modern nations published in 1795 marks the end of the duality of sources in international law. According to Martin's, there is only one source of international law, and that is consent. As set out in the title of his book, the essential sources of international law are the express and tacit conventions between the states. Of course, there are still natural traces of natural law thinking around in international law today, and it would be difficult, and some argue even impossible, to explain rules like Pacta Sunt Sabanda without recourse to natural law. But however, throughout the 19th century, the movement was towards the abolition of the law, uh, the, the law of nature as part of international law. In an address to the Congress of the American Bar Association in 1896, the Lord Chief Justice of England, Lord Russell, was still setting out the case against the law of nature as part of international law. He said, I quote, We cannot reason with fanatics armed with a natural right, which each one understands as he pleases, applies as it suits him, or which he will yield nothing, withdraw nothing, which is inflexible at the same time that it is unintelligible which is consecrated in his eyes like a dogma and which he cannot discard without a cry. For Martins and others, of course, the law of nations had been based on consent already much earlier. But one can really say that the turn of the century from the 19th to the 20th century marks the end of the law of nature as a basis of public international law. This leaves us with consent as the only remaining source of the law of nations. However, there are two major weaknesses with consent being seen as the basis of public international law. First, as has already been pointed out by Vattel, in 1758, express consent, which states give when concluding a treaty, can create obligations only between the parties to the treaty and not generally applicable law. The English scholar James Reddy, writing in 1851, said, bilateral contracts between nations or treaties do not bind or impose any legal obligations on other separate and independent nations or render any rules thereby sanctioned a part of international law obligatory on other independent states. And Henry Wheaton pointed out that treaty rules can be called laws only by analogy to the proper use of the term. There is, however, a second, more important flaw with international law based on consent. Rules based on usage or custom, even if construed as a tacit consent, are not binding. Cornelius Bunkershock was the first to point out in 1721 that usage is not binding but establishes only a presumption. Usage, he argued, can be abrogated by treaty and by unilateral declaration. He said, I quote, equity requires that we should observe that rule of the, of the immunity of ambassadors unless we have previously renounced it. The law of nations is only a presumption founded upon usage. 
And every such presumption seizes the moment the will of the party who is affected by it is expressed to the contrary. An express dissent excludes the, the supposition of a tacit consent. And there is no law of nations except between those who voluntarily submit to it by tacit convention. The view that usage based on tacit consent can be abrogated by express declaration to the contrary was followed by Wolf and Vattel and others. Martens, again writing in 1795, also held that simple usage comprehends only an imperfect obligation, i.e. a moral or ethical obligation. Each nation preserves the right of departing from it or abolishing it, provided it gives notice in time of such departure or abolition. Martens therefore concluded that a considerable part of the law of nations founded upon usage rests on a very feeble basis and is subject to perpetual vicissitudes. It was therefore relying on exterior motive arguments to ensure its duration. First, he based it on the natural force of habit which in acts of minor importance exercises its power over nations as well as over individuals. The peculiar advantage which results from the continuation of a certain usage. The desire of appearing in the eyes of foreigners as civilized, enlightened and a well-intentioned nation. Or on the other hand, the fear of retorsio juris on the same point i.e. the fear of seeing ourselves refused other points of usage. As a, as a fourth point, he pointed to decency, politeness, vanity, that have often given great weight to usage, particularly when an adherence to points of ceremony was in question. But while all these considerations are able perhaps to establish a de facto obligation on states, they are unable to create a coercive legal obligation. For more than 150 years, the prevailing view in the literature was that custom or usage could not bind states. Usage only created a refutable presumption that states would continue the act they did, that they continue to act the way they did. All states had to do is to give timely notice before they changed their practice. And this, I argue, proved a major flaw in the consent theory. I may add that in the present day literature, there are still, of course, many adherents to the view that international law is based on consent. The problem at hand is mainly glossed over by requiring only common consent or general consent in the sense of consent to the body of rules comprising international law rather than consent to particular rules. And, asserting that a dissent, that, and assertions that a dissenting state cannot free itself by an act of will from the obligations imposed upon it by a rule of customary international law. But of course, no reason is given why that rule of customary international law should be binding. The flaw in the creation of customary international law has recently been seized upon by a debate in the United States where scholars have argued that states, especially powerful states, are free to withdraw from custom. Now, while the majority of authors assimilated and some still assimilate customary international law with a tacit convention. In the mid-19th century, several authors started to detach international law 
in the form of custom from tacit consent. Instead, they replace consent as the formal source of international law with opinion juris, or the legal consciousness or conviction of states. This was mainly triggered by an attempt to remedy the weakness of consent as a source of international law, not being able to create law, i.e. not being able to create binding obligations of general application. The element of opinion juris, which we take for granted today as a necessary element of customary international law, does not appear at all in the international legal literature as a requirement of custom until the 19th century. Opinion juris, surprisingly, is not a creation of the theory of international law, but has its origin in the German historical school. The German historical school is an intellectual movement in the study of German law which started at the beginning of the 19th century. It was founded by Gustav von Hugo and especially Friedrich Karl von Savigny, who became its most prominent representative with the publication in 1814 of his pamphlet entitled On the Vocation of Our Age for Legislation and Jurisprudence in which he argued that codification of the law in Germany was inopportune. The German historical school of law identified law with the consciousness or spirit of a specific people. Its basic premise is that law cannot be deduced from nature. It is not a natural state of affairs. And it cannot be made by a, simple, by a simple act of the majority in the form of legislation. It rather develops through history. Law is to be seen as the expression of the convictions of the people, the folk, in the same manner as language, customs and practices are expressions of the people. The law is grounded in a form of popular consciousness called the Volksgeist. The original and true law of a nation is customary law. Legislation has no creative force of its own, but simply reflects what has already become law. Von Savigny and, more importantly, the German scholar Georg Friedrich Puchter advanced the idea that the mere repetition of a certain practice was not sufficient to create customary law. In his central work, Das Gewohnheitsrecht, Customary Law, Puchter wrote in 1828, I quote, the popular conviction or the consciousness of the people die Volksüberzeugung is the true source of all law. The consciousness of the people of something to be law manifests itself in the consciousness of each individual member of a people and thus necessarily in his or her acts. These acts are determined by this consciousness and are the application or the practice of this law. While such acts are the acts of individuals, they are united by a common consciousness, which has its common origin, again, in the spirit of the people. This practice of a legal conviction, which has its source in the consciousness of the people, is called usage, and is a manifestation or an essential consequence of this law. Now, it has taken me a long time actually to get my head around this whole thing, so I've tried to formulate it in uh, some more simpler terms. So in the, common, in the common conviction of a people, something is law. 
This conviction motivates the actions of the members of that people, which therefore allows us to deduce from the constant and uniform actions of the members of that people the law that lies at the heart of that conviction. So it's a circle. It starts with the conviction that produces a certain usage, and from that usage we can draw a conclusion back to the conviction what the law is. The introduction of a subjective element in the requirements of customary international law is a wonderful example of academic cross-fertilization. In the early 19th century, Puchta studied law at the University of Erlangen, where he was taught by a scholar called Christian Friedrich von Glück, who he admired tremendously. Glück, in his book published in 1797, dealt with the requirements of customary international law and, so far as I can see, for the first time stipulated a subjective requirement for custom. He wrote, I quote, Furthermore, the acts giving rise to custom must have been carried out in the belief of a moral necessity, ex opinione obligationis, which means that those through whose actions a legal custom is to be created must have acted in this way because they felt bound to act in this way and no other. That comes very close to our present day opinion jurist in international law. For Glück, the legal rule was to be deduced from the action of the state's subject. Now this idea which Glück advanced in the context of Roman law was taken up 30 years later by Puchta in his book Das Gewohnheitsrecht. According to Savigny and Puchta, in the development of a legal system, it is the professional duty of lawyers to ascertain the conviction of the people. In this way, law is found by the lawyers. So not much has changed here. Finding the customary law is a question of fact. The law is ascertained by observation and experience. Now, of course, this is the German historical school of law. What effect did it have for international law? As pointed out earlier, international law faced the problem that the tacit consent theory was unable to explain the binding legal force of customary international law based on usage. Now, international lawyers seized on the ideas of von Savigny and Puchter. Writing in the late 1840s, so just 12 years after the publication of Das Gewohnheitsrecht, the English scholar James Reddy, addressing the problem of the binding force of customary international law, wrote, I quote, There remains the true and solid basis of all common customary law, whether internal or external and international, so far as dependent on human action, as ingeniously and profoundly illustrated by some recent German lawyers of the first order, such as Monsieur de Savigny and Professor Puchter. He then continues, the legal validity and authority of common customary law do not solely depend or rest on the mere repetition of the same or similar act without regard to the views and feelings of the agent performing it. The custom or usage is not the foundation of the rule of the common law or the basis on which it is reared. It is the sign or mark or indication of the rule having been recognized as legal in the conviction of the people. It is the evidence of such a rule or cause of conduct having been settled as legal by successive generations. Thus, custom or usage 
is evidence, a mere material source rather than a formal source of law. The formal source of law is the common consciousness and conviction of the people of the legality of a certain rule. Or, in the context of international law, the common consciousness and conviction of nations or states. Reddy later states, I quote, the authority and legal validity are not derived from and do not belong to the custom or usage of and, of, of and for itself, but are derived from and belong to the rule of law which is contained or implied in it, the ratio juris, the opinio necessitatis, which are discerned from the custom or usage. The laws are called customary as well as common because they exhibit themselves in the permanent usage and uniform habits and practices of nations, indicating by their continued repetition and uniformity the consciousness and conviction of their legality. The consciousness and conviction is to be ascertained by fair inference and legitimate logical deduction from the usage of states, which must have certain qualities and requisites. The usages must be common, general, and uniform, and generally exceeding the ordinary or average duration of a human life. Usages indicating or proving a consciousness or settled conviction of legality can be relied upon as rules of common customary international law, at least until a new rule is adopted or a special treaty to the contrary is concluded. The requirement of opinio juris sive necessitatis makes its way into the textbooks of international law in the second half of the 19th century, clearly influenced by the ideas of von Savigny and Puchter. The requirement of opinio juris was first used by writers in two different functions. One group continued to base customary international law on tacit consent, but used opinio juris to distinguish legally binding custom from morally, politically, or otherwise motivated usage, sometimes also referred to as courtesy. For others, and this is the more important strand, opinion juris became the only formal source of international law. The most prominent representative of this view was Franz von Liszt, who wrote in 1898 that the only correct method for the science of international law was to deduce all legal norms exclusively from the practiced legal convictions of the state members of the international community. This method protected against the confusion of wishful thinking and legislative proposals with the applicable this method protected against the confusion of wishful thinking and legislative proposals on the one hand with the applicable law on the other. It also allowed for the law-creating power. No, it also allowed for law-creating power of states that were determined to change that law, and I will explain that a little later. So, public international law, according to this theory, was based on the consistent legal conviction of the civilized state. Customary international law was the actual usage as an expression of that legal consciousness. Now, of course, this raises the question as to the evidence of opinion juris. 
The English scholar James Reddy, writing in 1851, said that the material sources of customary international law, which he termed the records of customary international law, are not easily discovered. General history gives little information on the subject, he said. The evidence is to be sought in greater variety of documents. But still, it exists and to a large extent. And he identified three different kinds of records from which to deduce the opinion jurist. First, the legislative enactments of the sovereign power and the regulations or orders of the executive or administrative government. Second, the decisions of the judicial tribunals of a nation as recorded in the reports of these decisions. And he, mentioned in particular, he mentions in particular decisions of international courts and maritime price courts during war. And thirdly, the writings of the jurists or lawyers of a nation so far as they record the legislative, administrative and judicial reg regulations and the judicial determinations of the courts of their own country and also so far as they record the practice of their own and other nations during their own age. But Reddy admits that relying on the writings of, jury, uh, of jurists is of inferior quality. It produces inferior evidence unless these writings just record the acts of states and courts. Now, let me turn to the strengths and weaknesses of opinion jurists as a formal source of international law. It was said by the French jurist François Genie, what a wonderful name, uh, in 1899, that it was the merit of the German historical school that it understood the inadequacies of the previously dominant theories relating to custom, i.e. the tacit consent or pre presumed will theories, and that it was able to dig deeper in order to defeat them. The idea of opinion juris, legal consciousness, as a source of international law solves at least three problems. First and foremost, it no longer requires the legal fiction of tacit or presumed consent as the legal basis of international law. If the law is not to be based on consent, we can now explain why states can be bound without their consent. As Pufendorf already pointed out in 1717, there will never be consent of all nations. And, of course, he offered a disarming argument, and I would wish one could write articles like this today, because he said, there will never be consent by all, because the number of fools far exceeds that of wise men. <laughs> it is the legal consciousness or conviction of the community of states rather than the consent of each individual state that is important for the creation of international law. Even within a country or a people, not all members of the people will necessarily hold the same convictions, will share the same Volksgeist. There will be madmen, the tempestuous youth, who for whatever reasons will hold different convictions. Johann Kaspar Bluntschli, the Swiss scholar, writing in 1872, based international law on the legal consciousness of the civilized world. He held that the agreement of nations, the consensus gentium, was an expression of the common legal consciousness of mankind, rather than a mere expression of the will of an individual state. For that reason, neither the objection of an individual state nor the non-observance of a rule in an individual case could undermine 
the agreement, the consciousness of nations. The idea of international law based on opinion juris also overcomes the need for a law of nature as part of international law. Fundamental and higher principles can and of course have been generated by the legal consciousness of a people or in the case of international law by the legal consciousness, the opinion juris of states. In the second part of the 19th century, scholars who have discarded the natural law approach started to define such higher principles resulting from the legal consciousness of states. These higher principles based on the legal consciousness of states we refer today to as use cogents. Although the term use cogents was not expressly used in the context of international law, unlike in the case of private law, the idea was widely known at the time. French, Swiss and German scholars established lists of such higher principles. Such higher principles took precedence, not just over treaties, meaning consent-based legal obligations, but also over existing practices, meaning customary international law. Thus, when the term use cogents was first used in the international legal literature in the 1930s, it was said, for example, by Alfred Ferdros, that the principles of use cogents should have primacy over customary law and conventional law. It may be mentioned as an aside here that, of course, use cogents was used for the first time in an international decision, in the decision by an international arbitral tribunal already in 1928. So this sometimes should be taken into account by some scholars who claim actually that the idea was really only generated uh, in the context of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. What we can see is that the term, and even more so the idea of use cogents, has been around for much longer than people would think, and that it was closely linked to the idea of a legal consciousness. Bluntschli, writing in 1871, provides a good example uh, for these higher uh, principles. Bluntschli, of course, based his whole legal system on the legal consciousness of states. He gives the following examples of higher principles or what we may call use cogents. The prohibition of slavery, the rights of aliens, the freedom of navigation on the high seas, the prohibition to establish universal rule by a single state and the forcible oppression of other peaceful and viable states. And last but not least, religious freedom. He admitted that the latter was a rather new invention and was a sign for the development of mankind. Mankind, he says, considers religious freedom such a high value that religious persecution was no longer lawful, even if agreed upon in international treaties. Now, as I know that there are some people from Utah here in the audience tonight, I thought I should perhaps mention that Bluntschli, of course, added a footnote to religious freedom, saying, of course, that the right of religious freedom did not apply to such sects as the Mormons, who, for ostensible or real religious reasons, undermined the legal order of states. Now, this brings me immediately to the third advantage of opinio juris as the source of international law. Unlike higher principles based on the law of nature, higher principles based on opinion juris are not static, but are open to development. They can change over time as mankind and the legal consciousness of mankind develops. So no worries for the moments here. The legal consciousness of mankind or of states has caught up with you, and you are now safely included in that higher principle of 
religious freedom. The school that identifies higher principles with the law of nature is usually forced to argue that the principle in question has already been there, but it just hadn't been discovered or revealed itself before. Such problems are not faced by opinion jurists which can freely develop. The flexibility of opinion jurists as the source of international law also has another consequence alluded to by von Liszt. The attitude of a determined state can bring about a change in the legal consciousness among fellow states. Every change of customary international law results from a change in the opinion jurists of states. Opinion jurists can change gradually over time, but it is also flexible enough as a concept to change instantly and to give rise to instant customary international law. In my view, Bing Cheng was thus right when in the 1960s he argued for instant customary law on the basis of a changed or new opinion jurist. The problem was and is not that opinion jurists cannot change instantly. The problem is one of evidence to prove that opinion jurists has changed. As opinion jurists is to be induced from practice or usage, it is difficult, if not impossible, to establish the necessary opinion jurists without the requisite practice. Now, having argued for and shown that opinion jurists is the actual formal source of international law as it develops through history, I should perhaps try and test this view in present-day international law. The perceived wisdom is that customary international law consists of two elements, a material one, usage or practice, and a psychological or subjective one called opinion juris. I would argue that this is not in conformity with the idea of opinion juris being the formal source of customary international law. There are not two equal elements. The two elements are different, both in nature and purpose. Establishing a rule of customary international law is in fact a matter of finding evidence that the usage or practice of states manifests an opinion juris, namely a legal conviction that a certain practice was legally obligatory or legally right. There is just one material element in customary international law, and that is usage or practice. This view, in my opinion, is reflected both in the statute of the International Court of Justice and in the International Court's case law. Article 38, paragraph 1b of the ICJ's statute provides, I quote, the court shall apply international custom as evidence of a general practice accepted as law. Or in the French text, accepter comme étant le droit. So the general practice must be accepted by states as being the law. The clearest expression of opinion juris being the formal source of customary international law can be found in the Gulf of Maine case decided by a chamber of the International Court of Justice in 1984. In that case, the chamber decided that international law comprises, I quote, of a set of customary rules whose presence in the opinion juris of states can be tested by induction based on the analysis of a sufficient, extensive, 
and convincing practice. The court in the same case also spoke of a norm, I quote, whose existence in the legal convictions of all states is apparent from an examination of the realities of international legal relations. In the Nicaragua case in 1986, the court itself then stated that, I quote, the existence of the rule in the opinion juris, the existence of a rule in the opinion juris of states is confirmed or backed by established and substantial practice. What makes a rule a legal rule in international law is the opinion juris or the legal conviction of states. And that opinion juris is to be induced from practice. I would also argue that opinion juris or the legal consciousness of states lies at the heart of use cogens as it is defined in articles 53 and 64 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Neither a law of nature approach nor the consent theory can explain the creation and change of use cogents. Article 53 of the Vienna Convention defines use cogents as a norm accepted and recognized by the international community of states as a whole, as a norm from which no derogation is permitted and which can be modified only by a subsequent norm of general international law having the same character. Article 64 of the Convention deals with the emergence of new use cogents in validating earlier conflicting treaties. Use cogents does not have to be agreed upon by states. Rather, it has to be accepted by them as being non-derogable. It has to be accepted in the same way as customary international law under Article 38, Paragraph 1b of the statute has to be accepted as being law. So I would argue that in both cases, the formal source is the opinion juris of states. And this view is also supported by the fact that use cogents can change and new use cogents can emerge. This defeats any claim that use cogents is actually based on the law of nature, which is generally seen as not being subject to change, but being absolute, universal, and immutable. So, although I have told students in the last nine years that customary international law is based on consent. I now repent and from now on will declare that customary international law and use cogents have their source in the opinion juries, in the legal consciousness of states. Thank you very much.